I was thinking of the word random this week. It was just sort of a random thought. And, um, you know, the word random has been part of the English language for a really long time. And you go to the dictionary and it's defined as without plan or order, um, uh, order or access, without pieces of evidence. But these days, the word random is used in other ways. Like we just use it to describe somebody like, he is just so random. And you know what I mean, right? Random. Like it's even found its way into things like uh, stay calm and be random. You know, keep calm and be random. Or you can even find really random pictures. (laughs) Don't, Don't try to figure it out. It's just, it's just random. See, it's just sort of a random picture. But when we say random like that, and you can switch it now off because we're all going to try to figure out that picture. Um, extra credit if you can figure it out later. But, um, but what do we mean when we say that about someone? We mean somebody who has a bit of a free spirit. We might give them the benefit of the doubt. But rather somebody who's also somebody who's indecisive, maybe a bit impulsive, unpredictable, undirected. The, the word flaky comes to mind, um, not describing pastry. Um, and often a random person is very positive and enduring. Sometimes they're extremely annoying and exasperating. Megan and I have observed randomness uh, for many years in ministry and with children and grandchildren and also in observing our own lives. And we have a diagnosis uh, for this. We call it acute randoma. <laughs> On the first reading of Micah, his prophecy seems a little bit random. He... he he seems a bit random, He's, it's, which is opposite, really, of linear and sequential. The minor prophets are generally linear and sequential. They go from judgment to warning to doom to hope to restoration. And Micah has all those elements, but they're not in any particular order. They're kind of random. Micah's written a bit randomly, actually. He has some very abrupt transitions, moving quickly from threatening judgment to promising peace, and then right back to doom again. Like, ooh, I forgot to mention doom, I'm a prophet, got to do that. The voice switches from the first-person prophet to that of God to that of the accused, from one personal pronoun to another. Micah's a little random and not linear. One explanation is it was written over several decades. Uh, If you look at the first verse, it mentions three different kings over the time that he wrote. But we can't write Micah off because the message is here. And the, the words that helped me find the message in Micah were these three words. What... God wants what God wants and that comes to us from the two of the verses that are probably the best known and most quoted in Micah you've already heard already we've heard Micah 6 8 what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God but you also are maybe familiar you are familiar with Micah 5 2 whether you know it or not but we hear it at Christmas time all the time but you O Bethlehem Ephrathah are only a small village in Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past, and he will be our peace. Here amidst the sin and the judgment, the randomness of sins is a call to what God really wants, and it's what God wants for us, and it's what God wants from us. It's what God wants for us in terms of holy living and from us in terms of a life of obedience that gives life to others. We've been saying this each week that the message of the minor seems to major on doom until we see it as part of a bigger message. Our loving God is calling his people back to holy and hopeful living, 
aligned with his good purposes. And today in Micah, these stinging words of judgment are intertwined with words of hope and challenge. And we hear both what God wants for his people and what he wants from his people. And when we see it that way, it's not so random after all. Here's the way I've divided up into three, that God, first of all, wants a God-directed discipline. And then he calls us to an other-oriented justice. And then thirdly and finally, a Messiah-centered restoration. A God-directed discipline. This is the hard part, but the very real part. Like other minor prophets, it was during the time of the divided kingdom where you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And there was a season of declining morals, of, of idol worship, of insincere worship, of going through the motions, of obsession with wealth at the expense of the poor, and therefore leading to oppression and injustice against the poor. There was a clear delineation between the haves and the have-nots, and there were plenty of the don't cares as well. Warning upon warning the prophets brought to the people in this season. Call upon call. And so it's still no real response. And when we get to Micah, God has just about had it up to here. God's just about had it up to here with the people of God. The very introduction of the prophecy says, The Lord gave these messages to Micah of Moresheth during the years of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah when they were kings of Judah. The messages concerned both Samaria and Jerusalem, and they came to Micah in the form of visions. Samaria means the northern kingdom, it was the capital of Israel, and Jerusalem means the southern kingdom, the capital of Judah. They're both going to get it. God has had it up to here with both of them. And then he jumps right in. Let me read part of chapter 1. You might want to have your Bible open because it'll be on the screen briefly then it disappears meant to remind you to have your bibles but verse 2 of chapter 1 says attention let all the people of the world listen the sovereign lord has made accusations against you the lord speaks from his holy temple look the lord is coming he leaves his throne in heaven and comes to earth walking on the high places they melt beneath his feet and flow into the valleys like wax in a fire like water pouring down a hill and why is this happening Because of the sins and rebellion of Israel and Judah. Who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? Samaria, its capital city. Where is the center of idolatry in Judah? In Jerusalem, its capital. So I, the Lord, will make the city of Samaria a heap of rubble. Her streets will be plowed up for planting vineyards. I will roll the stones of her walls down into the valley below, exposing all her foundation. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her sacred treasures will be burned up. These things were brought, bought with the money earned by her prostitution. They will now be carried away to pay prostitutes elsewhere. Woo! Up to here. Both kingdoms get nailed in this. Both are addressed. And during the lifetime of Micah, Israel got it. In 722 BC, Assyria wiped out the northern kingdom, wiped it from the face of the earth, never to return again. And after these stinging words, Micah then focuses in on Jerusalem and Judea. And verse 9 says, For my people's wound is far too deep to heal. It has reached into Judah, even to the gates of Jerusalem. Now, you've got to remember that prophecy is not written like a, a narrative, like a news report. It's often written like poetry. And Micah makes use of some poetic devices, and he even, this is one of my favorite things about Micah, you'll never know why, but he loves word plays. He loves to play in words, and you know another word for word play, don't you? It rhymes with fun and starts with P, right? Okay, so anyway, but Micah actually uses puns, but they're not funny. 
In fact, verses 10 through 15 are, in a sense, is a whole series of puns, not for fun or laughter, but actually to drill down this serious accusation and warning to the towns of Judah. So I say this, even in his pun-ishment, he's about serious business. Now, word plays don't always translate well from one language to another. But if you look at verse 10 in chapter 1, it says this, Don't tell our enemies in the city of Gath, don't weep at all. You people in Beth Lephra, roll in the dust to show your anguish and despair. You said like, ha, ha, ha. Well, it's not funny in English, but let me explain. The word for Gath, the city of Gath, sounds like the word for tell. So in a sense, he's saying, don't tell our enemies in tell town. <laughs> and Beth Lephra means house of dust. Don't, so house of dust, you will roll in the dust. Now, attempts at all of these verses have been to translate of have been made uh, by different authors, but some of you know Eugene Peterson, the message. And let me just read verses 10 through 15 from Peterson. Don't gossip about this in Telltown. Don't waste your tears. In Dustville, roll in the dust. In Alarmtown, the alarm is sounded. The citizens of Exitburg will never get out alive. Lament, last stand city. There's nothing left in you standing. The villagers of Bittertown wait in vain for sweet peace. Harsh judgment has come from God and entered into Peace City. All of you who live in Chariotville, get in your chariots for flight. You led the daughter of Zion into trusting not God, but chariots. Go ahead and give your goodbye gifts to Goodbyeville. Mirage Town beckoned but disappointed Israel's kings. Inheritance City has lost its inheritance. Glory Town has seen its last of glory. And then finally in verse 16, shave your heads in mourning over the loss of your precious towns. Zap, doom, punishment, town by town, city by city. The Assyrian invaders would come and wipe them out. And in the next century, the invaders from Babylon would come and carry Judah off to exile. What does God want? He wants his people to be holy and obedient and living in peace with him. But they persisted in sin, so he brought discipline. We can count the ways of sin. There's idolatry. There's a wealthy scheming to take lands. There's listening to false prophets. There's oppression and abuse of women and children. There's evil leaders who are inflicting abuse and accepting bribes, interested only in money, dishonesty, cheating, extortion, and violence. It's not a pretty picture. And what does God want? God wants holiness and obedience. He wants alignment with his good purposes. It will only come after this God-directed discipline. And all these sins, they all add up to injustice. These are not just bad things. This isn't just about personal holiness. This is not just behaving yourself. This has to do with sins that inflict harm on others. These are selfish sins that harm, devalue, and diminish others. And God doesn't want to just punish, but he wants to exert discipline that brings change. What he wants from us, then, is not only this God-directed discipline, but he wants an other-oriented justice. An other-oriented justice. Many of you are familiar with North Park University. It's our denominational school on the north side of Chicago. Many grads in the room here. And some of our seniors headed that way this fall. Several years ago, the North Park did some campus improvements, and they tore down the old library I wrote some great seminary papers in that old library. I wrote them. 
and then I typed them on an electric paper on erasable bond paper. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm going off in an old direction, and I'll stop. But seriously, they tore down the old library. They built a beautiful new state-of-the-art library, and they built this quad in the middle there, and there's an intersection of, of uh, walkways there, and there's like a, a bench at each corner, and each corner has scripture written on it. It's beautiful. The one that you can see here, you can barely, it says test everything. Test everything. Um, hold fast to what is good. That's First Thessalonians 5, 521. And another one is Psalm 119.63, which is, I am a companion of all who fear thee, which is the founding verse. The, oh, the beginning of the covenant was, that was the text that was preached about, talking about the freedom that we have in the covenant, this freedom to, to explore the word together, the freedom even sometimes to agree to disagree, to, to hold on to some holy, um, um, uh, of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Descent, holy descent. But it's a freedom because we're going all together. We're companions of, uh, together in fearing God. That's Psalm 119.63. Proverbs 9.10 is on the third one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And on the fourth one is today's text, Micah 6.8. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. These benches our commitments of North Park to the truth of the word. But this last one especially points to what we call in the covenant the, the whole gospel of saving souls and meeting needs at the same time. Or as we like to say, God wants lost people found and hurting people helped. And that's where justice lies. Biblical justice lies in the hurting people helped. Let's look a little bit at this. God wants, what does God want? God, what does the Lord require of you to act justly? Justice Justice can be a complicated word these days, especially in our highly polarized culture. All of a sudden, justice gets labeled and stuck onto things too conservative or too liberal. And it's messed up by our political disagreements, and it's messed up in the church by theological disagreements. Justice can become a a charged trigger word, as we say. But it's a Bible word. There's many ways to look at justice. First of all, sometimes justice means retribution. In other words, getting what's coming to you in the law courts or in in, in warfare. And we see that in Micah's day, God in a sense is saying, you make plans for evil, I make plans for disaster. Justice will be in retribution. But justice also means reparation or fixing things, giving back something that's been taken away, giving back to the oppressed, giving back what's been taken away. And this becomes a little football that's tossed back and forth between political conservatives and political liberals too. What is the government responsibility in this? And we shouldn't fret about that. We should talk about what's the church's responsibility in this as people of biblical justice called to be involved in reparation, reparative justice, or restorative justice. The third one is Justice means, it's a a Bible word, biblical justice. Biblical justice includes retribution, it includes reparation. But the end product is a little bit different. It's a little bit different from the legal end end product, the political or social end product. The the, the end product of the social justice or, or, or political justice is fairness, you know, life isn't fair, and, and so justice, we want things to be fair. But the end product of biblical justice is the love of God. The end product of biblical justice is the shalom of God, which is the peace of God, which is more than just an end of war. Shalom means everything working as God has intended, or what we've been saying, aligned with his purposes. 
Biblical justice lifts up other people. And justice, rather than just focusing on good guys and bad guys, which we do when we speak of justice, and there is that in the Bible, biblical justice moves to focusing on, focusing on the people that God loves and the people that God values. That's why I call it other-oriented justice. We're so concerned sometimes with making our own point that we forget that what God calls us to is to care for another, serve another, lift up another. Other-oriented justice has its deep roots in the deepest place of creation, that we are created in the image of God. We are the image bearers of God. Every person is an image bearer of God. And so other-oriented justice sees that image of God in the other. It sees the value of a human life, any human life. And it brings, it desires to bring all to know the love of God. It comes in our care for physical needs. It comes in our care for spiritual needs. It comes in truly setting people free that they might know the peace of God. But it comes in some difficult actions that might run against the, the culture as well. Where things might be against the law, but the law might not be in alignment with God's law. We are called to do justice not just talk about it. <laughs> Some of you know of Pastor Eugene Cho. He's just stepped down from pastoring Quest Church in Seattle. It's a covenant church. And Eugene is a pretty widely read author and blogger and speaker. And a very humble, incredibly humble man. And um, he wrote a book called Overrated. Overrated, and the subtitle is, Are We More in Love with the Idea of Justice Than in Actually Doing It? But we are called to do justice, actions that set things right, actions that show the love of God, and we do it in relationships, and we do it ideally over time. I was thinking about some of the ministries they're engaged with, even in simple ways. Even our weekly ministry at Alden Care Center really speaks to the injustice in our culture that gradually devalues life as someone gets older and more ill. Our team is there every week saying these people are as worthy of a time of worship as anybody who is full-bodied, able-bodied, and perhaps a bit younger. Our team lifts them up and directs against that injustice of our culture and says these people and their worship are important. We have supported literacy work at Scott School, which is a well-funded school in one of the best districts in the state. That's why a lot of you live here is because of our schools. And yet they've designated certain kids that are at risk because of poor reading scores and because of situations in their life that have have got them to that place. And so we've tried to come along and assist with some of that literacy work and some of our garage garage sale proceeds and barbecue and books. We've built relationships with Y-Men over the years that works with young men and women from North Lawndale, one of the most difficult communities in Chicago who suffer racial and social marginalization in our relationships. We don't give them much money, but we get them relationship, friendship, and we include them and we value them and we do stuff together. We're not the rich white church that helps the poor black people in North Lawndale. We are partners with them and together looking at some of the injustices against people God loves. Covenant Kids Congo, a lot of you are sponsoring a child in Congo. And by doing that, we are addressing the injustice of hundreds of years of ugly colonial rule and then since independence, a very oppressive political rule that's kept resources from its people and particularly in the northwest region of Congo 
In a country rich in mineral resources, there's nothing for the people there. And so we're addressing this injustice by building infrastructure, building schools and water to raise the level of life because it's a justice issue. And I know what you're thinking. I could go on and on. (laughs) But I think you get it. And God may be asking us to do things that are a little more bigger than that. Things that might run counter a little bit to where the culture is heading. But if we root it in a God who values life and we see where that value is being diminished for individuals and for certain groups and segments of our population, then we can get fired up. We'll push away the political, the social, all that stuff, and we'll focus on what God is saying and the holy discontent that he might be giving us as we address issues that need God's justice, not conversation about it, but action. Okay, that part of the sermon is done for now. (laughs) God wants us to act justly, to love mercy. The word, the same word used for the tender love of God for his people. It describes how God treats his people. And then finally, to walk humbly with your God. Remember who Micah is writing to. He's writing to liars, cheats, deceivers, bullies, the self-absorbed, those clearly lacking humility. And he says, remember, to walk. Walk means to live, going somewhere. So in your, or in your manner of life, your lifestyle, walk with God, him first, humbly caring for others. A good, good thing for humility here is I know our, our, our time is going, but um, I read something this week that reminded me, when you walk into a room, are you a, you're one of two kinds of people. Are you a here I am person or a there you are person? Do you walk in the room and go, here I am. I'd love to engage you in conversation and tell you everything that's going on in my life. Forgive me if I forget to ask you any questions about yours. That's a here I am person. A there you are is, hey, I've been thinking about you. Or it's great to meet you. Tell me a little bit about you. That's a trigger. That's a, that's a, not a trigger. That's a, that, that's a guide, I think, to humility. Love justice. Do mercy. Walk humbly with our God. And finally, we want to look at this part about the Messiah. In, my, in Micah, we have this Messiah-centered restoration. There's images that pop up here and there. And again, remember my first word? First word of the sermon was random, right? Messiah, all the, Micah will just kind of drop these little things of, of hope in there. In chapter 2, he says, Someday, Israel, I will gather the few of you who are left. I will bring you together again like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Your leader will break out and lead you out of exile. He will bring you through the gates of your cities of captivity back to your own land. Your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. That pops into chapter 2 and chapter 3. It speaks of the promises of God too, and we hear the Messiah there as well. These promises of the Messiah making everything all better are clearly in the yet-to-be-fulfilled area uh, of prophecy. But clearly the work of Christ is referenced as it pops up in these different places. But it's most explicit here in chapter 5, verse 2, where we hear of the little town of Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village in Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past, and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength, and he will be the source of our peace. We read this often in Advent. This is the passage. Remember remember when the wise men came and they said, hey, where do we find this kid? And Herod had his Bible scholars go look it up. They couldn't Google. Maybe they had to look at like real scrolls and things. 
And they found this little obscure passage in Micah, and they say, well, the kid must be in Bethlehem, because here it's written. So amazingly specific. It's what God wants for us, the specificity of his truth. The specifics here about a savior, the specifics about a life that would be lived in shalom, aligned with his good purposes. And so uh, Micah opens us up to this view of this one who would be specifically born in this real place. And Micah gives us the hope then, the Messiah. And finally, he concludes with incredibly hopeful words at the very end of chapter 7. And they were echoed a little bit in the first song we sang of who is like the Lord. Micah said, where is another God like you? who pardons the sins of the survivors among his people. You cannot stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing mercy. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Can you hear cross, (laughs) crucifixion, salvation in there? You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised with an oath to our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, long ago. You can actually listen. If you read that again, you can actually hear Jesus in there. You can see the cross. You can actually envision the empty tomb. Because what God wants for us is salvation. What God wants for us is freedom in a relationship with Jesus Christ. What God wants for us is hopeful living in the Messiah. What does God want from us? He wants holy living. Not holier than thou living, but Christ-like living and making a difference in the way we live among people. Holy living. The message of the minor seems to major on doom until we see it as a part of a bigger message. Our loving God is calling his people back to holy and hopeful living is what we've been saying all along. Holy living. God wants justice. God wants mercy and humility from us. And we need to ask ourselves, where does this challenge me in my daily living? Where am I encountering opportunities to show the mercy of Christ? Where am I challenged in terms of my humility and living in dependence on him? And what are the things that are stirring me and causing me to feel discontent where maybe there's a call to do justice? What God wants from us is holy living. But what God wants for us is hopeful living. God wants for you salvation. God wants for you forgiveness and hope. What God wants for you is a freedom from the things that have held you back. What God wants is for you to live fully in and through your relationship with Jesus, with the Spirit having his way. This is a gift that you can receive from him. It's a gift I know many of you have received. It's a gift many of us receive, but sometimes we forget to live into it and avail ourselves of the moving of the Spirit. And for some, it might be the time to say, I want that gift now. This crazy world and the complexity of life it called me, it made me yearn for hope. And the hope is in the Messiah who is proclaimed here. It's what God wants for you And then from you, he desires this life that serves him.
Let's pray. Oh boy, Lord, there's a lot in this little prophet's book here. But help us at least remember these two passages about doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with you alongside this very specific and hopeful promise of a Messiah. Thank you that that one is fulfilled. That Jesus, you have been born, you have lived your life, you have died and risen again to be present and powerful among us. Give us the ability to live with you and walk with you in ways that make a difference. We pray in your name. Amen.